Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Enjoy a typical afternoon in New York City. My name is Paul Kersey. How's my life? I'm sorry. She died a few minutes ago, Mr. Kersey. Any chance of catching these men? There's a chance, sure. Just a chance. I'd be less than honest if I gave you more hope, Mr. Kersey. This is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. I said, turn around. Give me the money. He begins where all the super cops leave off. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? 950 a week to 470 if you reported last week. You understand not so many people know that. And uh, you want to keep it that way, huh? Oh no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. And if this person is listening to my voice, I urge him in the name of law and order to desist from this one-man crusade and turn himself into the police. Let's see the money, man. Call him a mad vigilante. Call him a hero. Either way, he's always on target. We want you to get out of New York. Permanently. Never make a death wish. Because a death wish always comes true. And you get to love it. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the original Death Wish from 1974. The studio was Paramount Pictures. The original release date was July 24th, 1974. The running time is 93 minutes. The rating is R. The budget was $3.7 million, and the box office take was $22 million, making it the 19th most ranking film of 1974. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 65% fresh from 26 reviews. The critics' consensus is Death Wish is undeniably exploitation fair and also undeniably effective. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here is his review. Death Wish is a quasi-fascist advertisement for urban vigilantes done up in a slick and exciting action movie. We like it even when we're turned off by the message. It gives us Charles Bronson in a role that starts out by being somewhat out of character. He plays a liberal, an architect, a former conscientious objector. But he turns into the familiar Bronson man of action after his wife is murdered and his daughter is reduced to catatonia by muggers. His immediate reaction is one of simple grief. Then something happens which suggests a different kind of response. 
His office sends him to Arizona on a job, and he meets a land developer who's a gun nut. The man takes Bronson to his gun club, watches him squeeze off a few perfect practice rounds, and slips a present into his suitcase when he heads back to New York. It's a 32 caliber revolver. Alone in his apartment, Bronson examines snapshots from his recent Hawaiian vacation with his wife. Then he examines the gun. He goes out into the night, is attacked by a mugger, and shoots him dead. Then he goes home and throws up. But the taste for vengeance, once acquired, has a fascination of its own. And the last half of Death Wish is essentially a series of cat and mouse games, in which Bronson poses as a middle-aged citizen with a bag of groceries and then murders his attackers. They are, by the way, everywhere. Director Michael Winner gives us a New York in the grip of a reign of terror. This doesn't look like 1974, but like one of those bloody future cities in science fiction novels about anarchy in the 21st century. Literally every shadow holds a mugger. Every subway train harbors a killer. The park is a breeding ground for crime. Urban paranoia is one thing, but death wish is another. If there was really that many muggers in New York, Bronson could hardly survive long enough to father a daughter, let alone grieve her. The movie has an eerie kind of fascination, even though its message is scary. Bronson and Winter have worked together on several films, and they've perfected the Bronson persona. He's a steely instrument of violence with few words and fewer emotions. In Death Wish, we just get about the definitive Bronson, rarely has a leading role contain fewer words or more violence. And Winter directs with a cool precision. He's one of the most efficient directors of action and violence. His muggings and their surprise endings have a sort of inevitable rhythm to them. We're set up for each one like the gunfights in the westerns. There's never a question of injustice because the crimes are attempted right before our eyes. And then Bronson becomes judge and jury and executioner. So he even, I guess they added this later, but it's kind of a spoiler alert, so just be aware. Uh, and that's what's scary about this film. It's propaganda for private gun ownership and a call to vigilante justice. Even the cops seem to see it that way. Bronson becomes a folk hero as the New York vigilante, and the mugging rate drops 50%. So the police want to catch Bronson, not to prosecute him for murder, but to offer him a deal. Get out of town, stay out of town, and we'll forget this. Bronson accepts a deal, and in the movie's last scene, we, he, we see him taking an imaginary bead on a couple of goons in Chicago. And that's the end of his review. So I first saw the original Death Witch on TV as a teenager, and I was just fascinated because it may have been the first Charles Bronson movie I ever saw as well. And there was something about the lack of a typical movie buildup when a person is about to shoot a criminal that really kind of fascinated me. Normally, you get this speech from the hero before the you know inevitable demise of, of the criminal. However, you don't get this at all in Death Wish, which I liked then and I still appreciate now. If a mugger tries to attack Bronson, he simply turns around and shoots the bastard without blinking an eye. It's almost like a trained soldier in combat. Part of why this movie works so well is the grittiness of movies from the 1970s. The reason why the Death Wish sequels never matched the intensity of the original was the polish of the 1980s. And personally, I've always enjoyed vigilante movies. I've never had a problem with criminals being taken out by civilians. Sorry. <laughs> Granted, nobody wants to live in the Wild West either. However, when you let the inmates run the asylum, something has to give. And this movie is kind of an example of that. Right or wrong. All right, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Charles Bronson, who plays Paul Kersey. Bronson was 53 at the time when Death Wish was released, and even though he had been acting since the 1950s, his best-known role would be as Paul Kersey in the Death Wish series. His birth name was Charles Buczynski, which is Lithuanian. 
Bronson served in the Air Force during World War II and then got into acting after the war. He appeared in many films as a character actor and eventually changed his last name to avoid potential issues due to the Red Scare and McCarthyism of the mid-1950s. The 1960s is really when Bronson's career started to take off as he appeared in The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Dirty Dozen, along with a variety of type of westerns. Once the 70s began, Bronson started to take more of a tough guy, hitman, vigilante type roles like the mechanic, the stone killer, and Mr. Majestic. The other main character is Vincent Gardenia, who plays Frank Ochoa. Gardenia would eventually be best known for his role in Moonstruck as Cher's father. Gardenia had been acting since the mid-1950s and mostly was a TV actor until the 70s when he has started to appear in more films, most notably Bang the Drum Slowly with Robert De Niro. Besides Bronson, Gardenia gets the most screen time in this film. The director is Michael Winner, and Winner had been directing films since the 1960s, but really hit his stride when he partnered up with Bronson on a few key films in the early 1970s, like Chato's Land, The Mechanic, and The Stone Killer. Sidney Lumet was in contention to direct this film before United Artists went with Winner. So if you didn't know already, the film was based on a 1972 novel of the same name by Brian Garfield. Garfield was offered the job by, of adapting the novel for his screenplay, but turned it down in order to adapt another one of his books. So Wendell Mays was hired to do the screenplay for Death Wish. Mays, you might remember from my past episode, wrote the screenplay to Anatomy of a Murder starring James Stewart. So Brian Garfield thought that Charles Bronson was miscast as Paul Kersey. Garfield didn't like the fact that as soon as Bronson appeared on the screen, you, quote, knew he was going to start blowing people away. <laughs> Michael Winner, however, dismissed the author's criticism, calling him an idiot. Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Jack Lemmon, Burt Lancaster, George C. Scott, Frank Sinatra, Lee Marvin, and Henry Fonda were all considered for the Paul Kersey role. Fonda was also considered for the Detective Ochoa role that went to Gardenia. Bronson himself thought that, that he was initially miscast in the role because of the transition that Kersey had to take in the role. The thought of Bronson initially being a meek, passive character did not fit his tough guy image that he had created. Bronson thought someone like Dustin Hoffman would have made more sense. Initially, Bronson wanted the film to be shot in Los Angeles, which is where he lived, so he could be closer to his family. However, winner and producer Dino De Laurentiis insisted on New York because the city was grittier and fit the story better. However, in Death Wish 2, they do go to L.A. Speaking of De Laurentiis, he was one of the most prolific film producers of the 20th century, beginning his career in Italy before producing American films later in his career. Most of De Laurentiis' most well-known films came in the 70s and 80s, including Serpico, Three Days of the Condor, the remake of King Kong with Jessica Lange and Jeff Bridges, Flash Gordon, Conan and the Barbarian, and Blue Velvet. All right, let's just get into the movie. The you know the movie starts almost like a, a romantic uh, drama with uh, Charles Bronson and Hope Lang on the beach enjoying their Hawaiian vacation, and the, the happiness level doesn't last long because it's back to the gritty streets of New York with a definite change in the music score. New York in the '70s was definitely definitely not like it is today, and Herbie Hancock performed the score. So Hope Lang plays Bronson's wife Joanna in the film, and Lang had been acting in film and TV since the mid-1950s, most notably on the TV version of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, playing the lead character Carolyn Muir. Paul Kersey is a mild-mannered architect. When we first see his work environment, he is in a discussion about the rampant level of crime in the city. Kersey tries to reason with his co-worker that maybe if the underprivileged had more options and better places to live, things would be a bit better. To which... His co-worker, played by William Redfield, calls him a bleeding-heart liberal. 
Kersley laughs it off. Sam, that's the character's name, presses the point by saying the city needs more cops to help the situation since the inmates are basically running the asylum. So then we cut to Paul Kersey's wife, Joanna, and and their daughter, Carol, who is played by Kathleen Tolan. Uh, They're grocery shopping while three punks kind of run rampant in the store, throwing things around. Interestingly, one of the (laughs) punks is Jeff Goldblum, and he's credited as freak number one. Kersey's wife requests to have her groceries delivered, and the punks find her address in the groceries and follow her home. The punks sneak into the apartment building, spray-painting the walls. They knock on the door, saying that they are from the grocery store, and then mayhem ensues. They spray paint the walls. Initially, it just seems like a basic robbery. Sadly, the Curseys only have $7 in cash in the house. So what ensues is one of the most brutal scenes in in film that I can remember, especially at the time. I can only imagine how shocking this film was, and it's still jarring to watch. Carol, the daughter, is gang-raped while Joanna is brutally beaten in the same room. Joanna tries to grab for the phone, is kicked in the head, and she slumps over. The punks freak out and run out, and Carol calls the police. We cut to Kersey's son, son-in-law calling him, informing him that Carol and Joanna are in the hospital after being mugged. So once in the hospital, it's just a mess. There's a bleeding man wandering around, and a doctor comes out and informs both of them that Carol will be okay, but that Joanna died. Carol suffers from now what would be called post-traumatic stress disorder. She is essentially catatonic and becomes hysterical if she's ever touched or even, you know, someone's around her. Kersey visits the police station constantly to receive updates on the case, trying to find the criminals who attacked his family. The detectives are not hopeful that the criminals will be caught. That night, Kersey sees a car break in from some teenagers in the middle of the street. The next day, he goes to the bank and asks for $20 worth of rolled up quarters. He then takes the rolls and puts them in a sock, which is basically like a makeshift weapon if used properly. He continues to go to the office to stay busy, but his boss decides to send him to Arizona on a job in order to get him out of New York. Carol's husband thinks it's best to take her to the Jersey Shore to help her recover. Kersey decides to test his new weapon, a sock filled with quarters, at night while walking home. A guy tries to mug him with a knife. Kersey whips around and socks him, no pun intended, and the mugger runs off. Kersey is visibly shaken from the incident. Again, prior to his wife's murder, he was essentially a pacifist, so he decides to fly to Tucson, Arizona on his job. Once in Arizona, he meets his client, Ames Janechul, which is Stuart Margolin, who was in the Rockford Files as Angel. Tucson life is much like the Old West, and the peaceful environment seems to fit Kersey. Kersey works long hours in Arizona to keep his mind off things. So Ames offers to take Kersey to a gun range for some recreational fun. We discover Kersey was CO in a medical unit during the Korean War, which is likely the last time he held a gun. And CO is a conscientious objector. It's an interesting scene. It's a goddamn much hoopla from the gun control people. Half the nation scared to even hold a gun. You know, like it was a snake who was gonna bite you or something. Hell, a gun, a gun is just a tool. Like a hammer or an axe. Wasn't long ago you used to put food on the table. Keep foxes out of the chicken coop. Rustlers off the range. Bandits out of the bank. Paul, how long since you held a pistol in your hand? A long time. Hmm. Which war was yours, Korea? Yeah. See much action? A little. Or infantry? I was a CO in a medical unit. Commanding officer, huh? 
conscientious objector. Oh, Christ. What a guest to bring to a gun club. You're probably one of them knee-jerk liberals thinks us gun boys will shoot our guns because it's a, an extension of our penises. I never thought about it that way. But it could be true. Or maybe it is. But this is gun country. Can't even own a handgun in New York City. Out here, I hardly know a man that doesn't own one. And I'll tell you something. Unlike your city, we can walk our streets and through our parks at night and feel safe. Muggers operating out here, they just plain get the asses blown up. Yeah, slip these on. All righty. This is a percussion pistol. 1842. You ever handle one of those before? You know how to fire it? Watch the cake. Why are you going to think the charm's going to hit the ceiling? this hog leg colt? No. Well, you a peculiar conscientious objector. These notches for real? Yeah. Belong to a gunfighter named Candy Dan, 1890. I do know something about guns, Ains. I grew up with them. All kinds of guns. You see, my father was a hunter. I guess out here you'd call him a gunman. My mother was the other side of the coin. My father was killed in a hunting accident. Some fool mistook him for a deer, you see. My mother won the toss. I never touched a gun since. I loved my father. Ames gives Kersey a going away present. We discover it's a 32 caliber gun, and he checks it into the airport. Times have changed. <laughs> Kersey returns to find out that Carol was put into a hospital. She can't seem to recover from her experience, and again, she's essentially in a, in a catatonic state. And Paul Kersey is, of course, very distraught from this. There's a really tough scene where Kersey gets back in, back the pictures that he took from uh, his vacation with his wife in Hawaii. You remember when you actually could get photos you could touch and they just weren't all on your phone? Yep. He then opens up his gift from Ames, which is a very nice-looking wood case that has a gun, some oil, and cleaning material. Kersey decides to walk the streets at night, almost inviting muggers to attack him. A guy pulls a gun on him, and Kersey turns around very calmly and deliberately, and to the shock of the mugger, gets shot by Kersey. Bronson plays this just perfectly. He's deliberate and cool the whole time until he gets home when it all seems to hit him. Now we finally see Vincent Gardenia, who plays Inspector Frank Ochoa, who comes to the crime scene the next morning. The guy Kersey killed was an ex-con and a drug addict looking for some quick cash to score drugs. That night, Kersey again walks the street to see a guy getting mugged and beaten by three men. They approach him, two holding weapons, a knife, and a steel bar. Kersey nonchalantly pulls out his gun and shoots all three. Two men in the chest and one in the leg. The third guy tries to run away and Kersey finishes the job. The man who, who was attacked doesn't want to tell the inspector who the man was that helped him. And why would he? <laughs> it's like, then he'd have to get involved with all this. 
but again, the really cool part about all of this is it's like the old West. He just he's very calm, uh, Charles Bronson when he does this, and it's kind of a probably what would happen in real life if this if something was like this to happen. You're not gonna have this long drawn out monologue. <laughs> You're gonna just get the job done. The thing I like about Bronson's character is really again there is no Hollywood shootout. It's quick. It's simple. Kersey's whole moral outlook is now different, and honestly, how can you blame him? However, as Ebert mentioned, this is a police nightmare. The public is actually on Kersey's side, the vigilante, and he's essentially doing the job of the police for them. And in some ways, he's doing it better, since the legal system may just put these people back out in the streets. How does the police department deal with this? I mean, even if they're doing their job illegally, the criminals almost have more rights than law-abiding citizens. Next, Kersey takes a subway for his next victims. It's funny seeing a cigarette ad, which is Winston, in the subway. A mugger pulls a knife on Kersey in the train and then slices his newspaper that he's reading. And Kersey acts shocked and then simply shoots the guy through the paper, which is pretty awesome. This is sort of Ebert's point. Morally, we should feel bad about this, but we don't honestly because fuck these guys. Why are they allowed to terrorize innocent people with very little repercussions? The, the thing Kersey has going for him is that he looks like a regular businessman. He's very unassuming and this works to his advantage. Also, his war record as a conscientious objector during, during the war works to his favor as well when it comes to evading the police. So then there's a police press conference. The police commissioner is the same actor, Stephen Elliott, as the commissioner in Beverly Hills Cop. It's a great scene as Kersey actually watches the press conference, smiling on television, as Ochoa and the commissioner lecture the vigilante. The reporters claim the crime numbers have dropped significantly since Kersey has started his crusade. The commissioner says this isn't true. So the reporters ask, would they even release those stats if they were true? To that, the press conference abruptly ends. So the police department is now inundated with false confessions. Ochoa has a lead to check out people who have a fa- who had a family who were attacked by muggers. Kersey's spirits are better since his nightly excursions. He even decides to make his son-in-law liver and spaghetti. Ugh, liver. <laughs> Whatever. Next, Kersey decides to get really brazen with his baiting of criminals and goes to a, a diner in a rough area. He flashes a wad of money while paying his check. He kind of saunters into an empty subway area and leads his potential trouble with him. And the two guys oblige. One guy asks for a match and then pulls a knife. The other does as well and then asks him for money. Kersey says he'll have to take it from him. He then quickly shoots both of them, but gets cut badly in the process. He shoots one guy to finish him off and the other guy gets shot again before collapsing and found by the police. Kersey gets away. So one of the police officers uh, is a character actor, Paul Dooley, who is in Breaking Away and plays the dad of the main character. The other character actors include Olympia Dukakis and Christopher Guess. He's the cop on the scene at the end of the film. There's an interesting news report scene that's kind of amusing, where average citizens are taking notice and fighting back. An older woman gladly shares her tale of defending herself with a hat pin to fight off two muggers. She had been robbed so many times and wasn't taking it any longer. There's another story of uh, construction workers who saw a mugging going on and decided to intervene and rough up the guy a bit before the police showed up. The worker coyly states, the guy must have fallen down accidentally. And therein lies the point. You can also fight back without having a gun. Muggers rely on fear and surprise. You must always be aware of your surroundings at all times. So Ochoa gets into Kersey's apartment without a warrant. It's, it's kind of interesting how he can do this illegally, but only when going after the vigilante. Hmm. 
we get the insider meeting between Ochoa, the commissioner, and the mayor. Even if Kersey is the guy, they don't want him because now the numbers do confirm that the crime rates are dropping significantly. Incidents are down from 950 to 470 in one week. They want to scare off Kersey without arresting him. An arrest will make him a martyr in the public eye. Commissioner? Frank, you know the district attorney? Mr. Peters? Inspector? Commissioner says you have a pretty good suspect. Well, he uh, fits the bill in some respects. We uh, got a blood sample from the knife used on him in the subway and checked it against the sample I found in his apartment. It narrows it down. But in the balance, he could be the man. Yeah. Yeah, he could be. Frank? Suppose this Paul Kersey is the vigilante. All right, let's say that. We don't want him. Okay. Inspector, on my desk, I have a statistic red hot out of the computer. Mm-hmm. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? From 9.50 a week to 4.70, he reported last week. You understand not too many people know that. And, uh... You want to keep it that way, huh? Oh, no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. We'd have vigilantes out in the street killing anybody who even looked greasy. You can see that. We want this man to quit, desist, go away, to stop. So the mugging rate can go up? By arrest him. Wouldn't that get him off the streets? My God, man, I don't want a martyr on my hands. All right. All right. I just want to hear you say it. I'll try to scare him off. But that's as far as I'll go. That's right, Frank. Scare him off. Scare him off. So today's moviegoer will probably be bored about how deliberate the film is in pacing, but I think it adds to the grittiness and real vibe of the film. This does not need to be car chases and thousands of rounds of ammunition. This is more in line of how a real vigilante would act, methodical and calculating. You don't need to shoot someone 20 times to get the job done. Kersey kind of does turn into somewhat of a modern-day cowboy. It's kind of like the get-out-of-town-by-sundown And there's a great scene at the very end that Ebert kind of alluded to. And I also like that the short credits are only 30 seconds long. So yes, this is a great movie, and you should definitely check it out. And there's a nice little twist at the end. Uh, It was a little bit spoiled um, by Roger Ebert. All right, there are a lot of fun facts about this film. So after finishing The Stone Killer in 1973... Charles Bronson and Michael Winter wanted to make another film together, and then we were discussing few further projects. What do we do next? Asked Bronson. The best script I've got is Death Wish, and it's about a man whose wife and daughter are mugged, and he goes out and shoots mugger, says Winter. Bronson then says, I'd like to do that. <laughs> Winter says, the film? Bronson replies, no, shoot muggers. <laughs> Director Michael Winner was anxious before production because he was waiting for Charles Bronson to tell him he wanted Jill Ireland to play his wife in the movie, despite Winner's feeling that she was unsuitable for the part. Finally, he said to Bronson, Charlie, do you want Jill to play your wife in Death Wish? 
Bronson replied, No, I don't want her humiliated and messed around by these actors who play muggers. You know the sort of person we want? Someone who looks like Hope Lang. Lang was an attractive, blonde, all-American girl-next-door type who had starred in the TV series The Ghost of Mrs. Muir and the new Dick Van Dyke show in 1971. So then Winter said, Well, Charlie, the person who looks most like Hope Lang is Hope Lang. So I'll get her. And he did. Charles Bronson once said of the movie, I certainly don't advocate anyone taking the law into their own hands. I don't think the film advocates that either. If my films have a lesson, it's that violence doesn't pay. My opinion is violence only breeds violence. Filming during production was so cold that crew members complained of the water in their eyes freezing. These weather conditions forced them to wear face masks. Dino De Laurentiis and, the, and Paramount originally wanted to call the film The Sidewalk Vigilante because they thought a movie with death in the title was a deterrent and would put audiences off. Audiences loved the film so much that Paramount actually raised the ticket price from $3.50 to $4 per ticket. At that point, only The Godfather and The Great Gatsby had been as expensive. It has also been rumored that Denzel Washington played one of the alley thugs around 47 minutes in, though uncredited. While the actor in the film does bear a resemblance, uh, Denzel Washington confirmed in a 2016 interview with Yahoo that he did not appear in the film, nor has he even, nor had he even started acting in 1974. Washington also stated in an interview that he saw it added to his IMDb page incorrectly. Sylvester Stallone was set to direct and star in a remake for MGM back in 2008, but it fell through. All right, so these types of movies aren't for everyone, and I get that, but I think if you're a fan of 1970s movies and you're into something that, while the topic may not be entirely pleasurable, I think it's better than what would be made today. Uh, it's kind of cool that, you know, there really is no moral, I don't know if there's really a, you know, they, they kind of like spell, they don't spell it out for you. They kind of allow the, the viewer to make their own judgment for it. There's no like spin one way or the other. You may agree with Kirsty, you may not, but they don't really lecture you about it. And I think that's the cool part of the film. Today, I think there would be a spin one way or the other and kind of force a bias that doesn't necessarily need to be there. I think the audience can be smart enough to figure out their own opinion, you know, whether you agree with it or not. That's, I think, the best part part of movies when they can just throw it out there. You make up your mind for yourself. And if you don't want to see it, don't see it. And if you do enjoy it, that's great. And I think that was what was better about movies way back when. All right. Until next week, this is Brian signing off. Hey, this is Brian Davis. And you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com. From 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues. Because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat. Because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now. So if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there. So if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to TeePublic, that's T-E-E, 
P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!